This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Join me in collaboration with Wolf Hall Weekend next June at Cathay House in Devon. Book now to experience the literary event of the year in celebration of Dame Hilary Mantle's multi-award winning Wolf Hall Trilogy. Join a weekend of personal tributes, expert talks, celebrity readings, interactive workshops, literary and historical reviews, and good food in the enchanting period location of Cathay House in East Devon a favorite location of Hillary's close to her home. This is a unique and immersive event where many of Hillary's friends and colleagues will honor her memory and share their experiences in helping to bring her literary genius to the world through books, stage, and screen. Historical experts will shed additional light on the turbulent world of Thomas Cromwell, and literary experts will explore Hillary's imaginary interpretation of Cromwell that works its magic on her readers. This is a limited capacity event, so make sure you book early to secure a place. You'll find a link in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of Tudor's Dynasty. My name is Lacey Bonar-Hall, and I'll be your host for today's episode, where I interview author Kathleen B. Jones on her upcoming book, Cities of Women, her debut novel of historical fiction that explores the lives of women, both modern and medieval, who dare to challenge social norms. Born and educated in New York, Kathleen B. Jones taught feminist theory and interdisciplinary writing for 23 years at San Diego State University. Besides several scholarly books, she published two memoirs, Living Between Danger and Love and the prize-winning Diving for Pearls, A Thinking Journey with Hannah Arendt. Her essays and short fiction have appeared in Fiction International, Mr. Beller's Neighborhood, The Briarcliff Review, Brevity, Humanities Magazine, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Among her numerous awards, she is a recipient of multiple grants from the National Endowment of the Humanities, Writer's Grants to the Vermont Studio Center, a Distinguished Alumni Award from CUNY Graduate Center, and an Honorary Doctorate from Aribro University, Sweden. She holds an MFA in Fiction from Fairfield University and lives in Stonington, Connecticut. Cities of Women is her debut novel. Join me while I chat with Kathleen about all things Christine de Pizan and medieval manuscript culture. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Okay, so I am joined by Kathleen B. Jones, the author of the upcoming novel, Cities of Women. Hi, Kathy. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Lacey? Oh, I'm good. I am so excited to be talking about the book. I just have absolutely fallen in love with your characters and your writing style, and I just cannot wait 
to share with the listeners a little bit about your novel. So I have a couple of questions for you, if you don't mind. Sure. First of all, just the, the subject matter of the book. How did you come to land on this subject matter? So what what made you want to tell this particular story? That's a great question. I have been fascinated with Christine de Pizan for decades. Uh, I first came across her when I was expected to teach a course, which at the time was called Women and Western Civilization at my university, San Diego State. And I uh, read the book of the City of Ladies and a number of other of her publications and was just fascinated by her voice and her biography, which I read little tidbits about and thought, gee, that would make a great novel. But I was also obsessed with the media evil manuscripts at the center of her life. And the fact that they're such extraordinarily uh, sensual objects, they're visual, they're tactile, and the production process that went into them had long been of interest to me as well. I could see examples in the museums in New York where I grew up. And when I started out to think about telling this story of a woman in the middle, late middle ages who becomes a prominent writer and the basically producer of her works, collaborating with other artists, scribes and so forth. I thought that would be amazing, but I can't really focus on her. It's better to bring in a secondary character to tell Christine de Pizan's story and the story of the manuscripts through somebody else who would have been connected to her work. And then I thought, well, you know, I don't want to get caught up in the falling into the pitfall of writing about history without making it relevant to now. And so the idea of what's called a dual timeline novel came to me and that brought forth the contemporary timeline of a, an academic who is sort of dissatisfied with where she is in her career and just sets off on a new path to try to prove that the artist who illuminated the manuscripts of Christine de Pizan was another woman named Anastasia. And behind all of this was the idea that the past is never really past, that it leaks into the present, that time is more like a continuum that we can float in and out of different periods. And I think the experience that Verity, the modern character has of, of with the manuscripts is as much about how that time of the past still leaks into the present and, and can become a kind of obsession, which it does for her. You're, you're speaking my language, Kathy. As <laughs> um, someone who deals heavily uh, in medieval manuscripts, and like you're saying, the like physicality of the manuscripts, that really spoke to me uh, in your book because so much does so much of the book does revolve around the production of these manuscripts, which I just absolutely loved reading about that process. So can you tell us a bit, just a bit, about how medieval manuscripts were made and the role that manuscript creation plays within your novel? Okay, sure. Well, it was first and foremost a collaborative process. I know when you think about 
about a workshop and people talk about the workshop of Christine de Bizan. One imagines somebody in a room or a large room where other people are all around and the scribe's corner is over there and the parchment maker is in a, you know, maybe in the back outside. But in fact, the way it worked was that each of these artists or artisans had their own atelier or studio in medieval France. And France, Paris, was really the center of the book trade at this point in time. And so ringed around the center of the city, the Ile de la Cité, uh, and on either side of the, of the Seine, the right and the left bank, were these artists' studios. And a per, an author would come to a, a bookseller with an idea and the libraire or the bookseller would have a group of people he or she was familiar with, the parchment maker, uh, the scribe, uh, the illuminator, uh, and the bookbinder, and might recommend to the, uh, the client who had a commission, say, from some noble person for a book of prayers or something, uh, various artisans. And they would then take the vellum that had been prepared, the parchment that had been prepared by the parchment maker in choirs, in folded sets of leaves to a set of scribes. And that was fascinating to me. It wasn't the case that just that a book was necessarily produced all by one person copying it. And what was also fascinating to me was that the scribes would, would, would write in the, the leaves of the book the words that the author wanted there or the prayers that were to be included and leave spaces for the illuminations, whether around the borders that were called uh, foliated borders where there would be all these elaborate you know, flowers and mystical creatures crawling out of the page and also squares where there might be uh, particular images uh, that would be set in to have a conversation with the text. The other thing that I found fascinating about this, about the medieval manuscripts was that they're almost like the precursors to our modern graphic novels. There's a conversation going on between the images, the visuals and the written word. And you see this extraordinarily in Christine's books where she might have an image of herself presenting the book to a queen or a duke uh, and, and she sort of situates herself as the author in these manuscripts. After the, the folios were inscribed and they were taken to the illuminator, the bookbinder's work came into play. And sometimes one thinks of the bookbinding, no, not very consequential, but it's what held the whole thing together and allowed the, the, the work of these various authors to, to survive for centuries. So that isn't necessarily a lesser trade, even though it hasn't got all of the artistic flourishes that you see in the uh, illumination in the illuminations themselves. So that's just a little sort of a nutshell of how the production process took place, where some sets of materials would be gathered from different places, different studios in medieval Paris, and then uh, all of these artisans' work would come together in this collaborative process of bookmaking. And you do a you do a really fantastic job of really bringing that to life in your book. I mean, even discussing like 
the different the quality that you could find in different sheets of vellum oh, yeah, at the time. Yeah. I just I really love that because when you are you know holding these manuscripts, you can tell the even you know 600, 700 years later, just the different quality in vellum from the manuscripts that would have been produced for like the dukes and the queens uh, that you're talking yes. about versus the manuscripts that are produced more for like daily use um you know for something like maybe like a doctor like a medical professional who also right. manuscripts with them and they still you know would have been these high quality materials but just like a different feel in the vellum and I think you do a really you do a really good job um, of describing that. You've also really captured the essence of what it's like to be a medievalist. There were so many times throughout the novel that I was just like blown away by how you gave words for like the the experience that you can sometimes have mm. um, in an archive, having that aha moment and feeling really deeply connected to the people who worked on these manuscripts, who owned these manuscripts, you know, who used these manuscripts. So what to you is so special about the Queen's book, this Harley MS4431 that's housed at the British Library? And have you had the chance to actually see, or I like to say meet, uh, this manuscript in person? Well, let me answer the second question first. It, unfortunately, no. I tried when I went to the British Library to come up with a compelling reason why I could see Harley 4431, which is known as the Queen's Book, because it is a compilation of so many of Christine de Pizan's writings that she assembled with the support of Queen Isabeau, who was uh, the regent at the time to Charles VI in France. And it was with her support and in also to, to underscore the, the queen's ability to be regent at the time when Charles VI was in one of his madness bouts, shall we say. And so it's a very important manuscript. And precisely because of that, and it's traveled through many, many, many hands to finally arrive at the British Library. Um, it, it's one of their most precious books. Uh, and I couldn't get permission to actually see it in person. The, the, the entirety of the manuscript is, as you know, digitized. So you can see in great detail every single page of the two, what's now two volumes. It was originally one huge book and it was divided into two over the course of time. Um, I did my best to, and I had you know, letters of support from different people, but I'm not a paleographer, which is to say, I'm not somebody who studies the nature of the script or the paper itself in such detail, or even, you know, needs to get that close to the texture of the paint and the, and the decorations to be able to say something about that aspect of the manuscript. So, no, <laughs> I couldn't. Uh, and it was it was disappointing. And but at the same time, it led me the, the, the disappointment to be able to write scenes where Verity, who's confronted with that same fact, she's not able to actually see the manuscript that she's 
obsessed with, um, that it, it, it allowed me to write about the emotional experience that she's having in relation to these to these objects and and to express her both disappointment and renewed drive, you know, to figure out this mystery that's at the heart of of her um, of her investigation. You know, was Anastasia responsible for any of these uh, of these paintings? And you know, as an aside, the only knowledge we have about Anastasia comes from the, the book of the City of Ladies, where Christine de Pizan mentions her uh, name. We don't know whether she's real. She could be entirely fictional, uh, representative of what Christine's saying about women's contributions. But that was great for me because I could invent her character precisely because we don't know anything about her and, and basically make up the story uh, uh, behind Anastasia, you know, the story of Beatrice, who, who is the young girl growing up in a really difficult time in medieval France, who becomes the artist Anastasia in my novel. It's fiction. Uh, it, there's basis in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of facts, but not that one. We don't know whether she ever even really existed. But for a novelist, that's great. It, it, you know, it lets your imagination go wild. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of like the dream. You know, you start with with one little nugget um, of a person who I I would think likely did exist, um, or I would like to think that, especially after reading your novel. <laughs> um, but you you do a really fascinating job of positioning this possible woman uh, in her historical context and explaining how, you know, these women probably would have come to to join that uh, occupation and certainly giving voice to, I think, a group of workers whose story has largely been lost um, to history to the point where you hear reference to the these masters. Right. Um, you know, because it was just assumed that this was a largely or entirely male-dominated occupation, when in reality that likely wasn't the case, but it's like you're arguing from a lack of sources, you know, when, when you're trying to give voice on to those types of experiences. Can you, and this kind of leads into my next question, so I can tell that you have poured a lot of time into the research uh, that you you know, put into this book to give that really engaging and accurate historical context. So can you tell us a little bit about the writing and research process and maybe share your favorite topic that you uh, researched when, when you were, you know, doing that background digging for the novel? Sure, sure. The research process was uh, exciting for me, and and that is partly because you know my background in academia, it's both the bane of the scholar's existence, and and, and you know uh, therefore it can be a a burden to the novelist, you know, uh, the but the process itself was incredible, and I was lucky to be in touch with a number of medieval scholars who had done extremely expansive research on the manuscript production process and was very, very helpful. And it, it gave me the confidence to create this woman character, Anastasia, because 
I, in those conversations I had largely through email, um, I did come across people who could verify that there were women in all of these trades. And, you know, I wasn't making it up entirely. So we know there were women scribes. Not only that, we know there were women illuminators and parchment makers and all of those traits. And one person in particular put me on to this extraordinary resource that's available through uh, what's called uh, geographic information systems. They've actually mapped medieval Paris onto uh, the records of what they what are extant records of medieval Paris onto the contemporary Parisian uh, maps. So I could trace where illuminators would have lived and practiced. And that was just, you know, I would go back to those maps all the time to, to make sure I had that level of accuracy about, you know, where which side of the Seine were the illuminators on, the painters, which side were the parchment makers on and so forth. Uh, and it was as if I were, I were like traveling back in time, you know, walking on those streets almost. So that was one factor. The other that was really amazing for me was, um, we don't know very much about Christine de Bizan's youth. So there I had a lot of license and I did research into the Italian background from which she came, both her father's uh, work in Bologna and later uh, their, the family's residence in Venice because she was born in Italy. And one of the most fascinating things I researched and that excited me, but that never made it into the novel, was uh, finding out about, in Venice about prostitution in Venice and that many of the prostitution, let's say, uh, houses, okay, were run by women because the uh, leaders of the city had found so much corruption and exploitation of the women when men were running them. And I wanted to create a character and did. I wrote several chapters, but this is what happens when you write a novel. Is it really necessary to the story, even though you fall in love with what your research has told you about this period of time? No, it wasn't. And so those chapters and all of that went out went out the window. And And that... That's really an important thing that anybody who's writing a novel set in the past has to learn a lesson about the balance between, you know, research and fiction. And, you know, that you can't put everything in. It has to be necessary to the character's development or to the plot or whatever aspects of the story uh, you're, you're telling. So um, working with those maps of medieval Paris, working in the archives in uh, the British Library, I had had experience working in the archives in uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale from some other work that I had done in my past. So just like you're saying, our archival research and the aha moment, it, it never stops having a kind of lore for me. And and actually also the connection between uh, what's in the novel, between the uh, medieval manuscripts and those pre-Raphaelite artists, William Morris uh, and all the people in, in his circle was another thing that was just amazing to me to, uh, to have uh, learned about and to be able to talk about in the novel. I love that. I love that it it seemed like it really like blurred the boundaries of chronological time for me. Mm. It, so we were already following along with a with these two medieval women and their experience. Yes. 
And then we're also following along with a modern woman who is discovering another fascination with the Middle Ages through the pre-Raphaelites too. So I, I right. love it. I just felt like there were so many layers. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about too, with being able to map these medieval locations on a modern map of Paris. And then when you're, you know, when you're in Paris and actually walking in the footsteps of these manuscript makers, you can, you know, I think just get a feel, especially there's something about Paris and especially the river area of mm. Paris where it does, it seems like you're just, you know, having some sort of a historic reaction, you know, it yeah. just it yeah. feels like time is very much different um, in Paris, I guess is how I would put it. And I felt like you, you know, you really bring that to life to where I had just told my partner yesterday that we need to get back to Paris <laughs> because now I want to experience it, you know, having, having this, you know, kind of in, uh, in the back of my mind. And if you do decide that you're going to write another novel on, um, that other thread of research, mm -hmm. let me know. So I have one more question for you. I know your, you know, your time is, is a little limited. You're busy, so I don't want to take up too much time. But I really fell in love with your characters. So would you be able just maybe in, you know, a quick uh, minute or two, give just your favorite um, aspect of each of the three main characters mm -hmm. that you developed for this novel? Sure, sure. Verity, who is the modern professor, uh, what uh, excited me about her is her ability to be bowled over by beauty. Just that, you know, she can, she, you know, often we think of academics as living in their heads all the time. And, and that's true a lot of the time, but she's driven by something else. Uh, she, there's a line in the novel where she's having a conversation with her friend Regina early in the novel. And, and she says, well, look, I wanted to be a dancer. You know, there's this art dimension, the creativity, and, and that is important in her character. That and the idea that she uh, becomes obsessed. I'm fascinated with her obsession with what, you know, what drives her, what keeps her going, even though she's continually confronting obstacles to any of what she's looking for ever being found all the way to the end. Um, so Verity, that character, the other modern character who is also called Anastasia and not, not accidentally, names of characters are very important uh, in, a, in a novel. The modern Anastasia, what I love about her is that she, she seems to be a really crusty kind of sarcastic, uh, you know, ironic language sort of character, but she's got a soft core. And the relationship that it that develops between the two women, between Verity and the modern Anastasia, reveals ultimately her vulnerability, her insecurity, and you know, beyond that crusty exterior, there is something too that they that they come together and actually, you know, wind up falling in love around their shared passion uh, uh, that cuts through, you know, what we often present as our faces, uh, and then the medieval character, Beatrice, who, who changes her name for reasons that you'll have to discover when you read the story. <laughs> She's just so feisty. I mean, determined, uh, 
her she loses her family except for her mother in the plague which is a horrible experience in uh that of course we all moderns can relate to uh but she's just so determined and clever and wily and you know she's got she's got goods and bads about her she's not pure let's put it that way and i and i like that i like that about a character who's you know she shouldn't be perfect um none of the characters are perfect and and that's what makes them interesting i think so thanks for that question yeah i think so too you can tell each character has layers to them you know you're not you might think that what you get to see you know at the surface level is all that goes into a character and then as the novel develops it's interesting because you feel like you really get to know these women who you're writing about and you realize you know how complicated um especially with the modern uh women i think it's it's interesting to be able to get that sort of an insight um into this relationship between the two of them and how their work really helps to inform that relationship mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and i just i love that i just felt like there were so many layers to the novel that it really kept you engaged uh the entire time i love the the time flip uh, element of it too so thank you thank you so much uh for thank you coming on and you know talking about this book so the book is released in september uh you can pre-order now and i would highly encourage um anyone who has an interest in this time period or you know this type of a story to check out cities of women it is a fantastic novel by Kathleen B. Jones. And thank you so much, Kathy, for, for coming. Thank on. you. Thank you for having me, Lacey. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Kathleen B. Jones. Her book, Cities of Women, will be published September 5th, 2023 by Key Light Books and is available now for pre-order. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.